Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. For the last few months, we've been doing this work with Sarah's House, coming alongside Sarah's House, supporting them in their mission and their ministry. And I just wanted to recap all of that so that we hold it all in perspective here. So this work with Sarah's House began months ago where we started with the baby bottle campaign. Um, well, we actually had a youth serve day where some of our youth went and served on site at Sarah's house. And then we began with the baby bottle campaign. People took home empty baby bottles and filled them up with money and brought it back. And in that, we raised over $4,200 for Sarah's house. Then we had our golf tournament. And with the golf tournament, there were 25, more than 25 volunteers over a thousand volunteer hours, including planning and execution. And we had 20 supporting community sponsors for that. And that event raised over $10,000 for Sarah's house. At our uh, Stonebridge day camp, the families who were involved there under uh, director Stephanie's leadership, the the families who were involved there, they ended up bringing in 1200 rolls of toilet paper, paper towels and baby wipes with an estimated value of $1,000 for Sarah's house also with those supplies. And then on June 24th, we had about over 50 people from our church who went to Sarah's house and Tiny Treasures, and they completed over 20 projects for those two um, ministries. About 150 hours of service all totaled. And from that, we got three ongoing commitments to serve at Tiny Treasures from people in our church who will be continuing to help that ministry and bless that ministry. So praise God for all of that. That's significant. That's going to support Sarah's house. It's going to help them continue to minister to women and children who are in need of a transition. And it's going to help Tiny Treasures also. Thank God for all that work. Thank you to all of you who helped. And uh, Laura Melanowski, the director of Sarah's house, she has been asked by a few people, how can people from Stonebridge continue to help? And what she said is, first off, continue to pray for Sarah's house, to continue to pray for Tiny Treasures. Prayer is critical in supporting that ministry. But then also, if you have some time once a week or even once a month, consider making an ongoing commitment to volunteer with Tiny Treasures. Tiny Treasures is a thrift store that um, supports Sarah's house, works with Sarah's house, and they need volunteers. And with the growing needs in the community that they're trying to uh, address. They need more volunteers, people who can come in and tag things, people who can come in and organize things. So if you have time once a week, once a month, um, talk to me, talk to Laura. I'm going to also put you up there, Gail, as well, who's doing our slides up. She, uh, she runs the place. She's the big boss. Um, so you can talk to her as well. She's the one you'd be working with. Um, but let us, if God puts that on your heart, let us know and, and consider maybe volunteering and doing an ongoing commitment with them there. But with our sermon series now, as we dive into the scriptures, we've been in this sermon series called um, Rock On, focused on 1 Peter. And it's called Rock On because Peter's name means rock. It's still not funny yet. Give it a couple weeks, people. We have two more weeks. It'll be funny again by the end, I promise. I can't promise that. I have no idea, but we'll see. Um, But this letter is a letter of encouragement. Peter is writing to Christians who are struggling, who are suffering. And he's reminding them of who they are. And he's helping them to understand 
that God is in control. So I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and I invite you to hear God's word. Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you have gathered us. We thank you that we are here in this place now. We ask that you teach us. As we turn to your scriptures, we ask that your Holy Spirit would shape us and form us. Help us to respond to your scriptures well, to respond to the world well. Help us to be your people in this world. And help us to know how to follow you in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. So Lord, speak to us now. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Peter begins this section with this line. The end of all things is near. It can also be translated as the end of all things is at hand. This is a fairly common idea in the New Testament. You can go through the New Testament and you can read it through and you'll come across a number of passages where it seems as though the writer believes that they are living in the end times. That things are all going to end soon. And there's a lot of evidence that the earliest Christians all believed that Jesus would return before they died. In their generation, Jesus would return. It's a pretty common idea in the New Testament, the belief that they're living in the end times. And I have to say, it's actually a pretty popular idea today in a lot of circles. In fact, just this last week, as I was preparing for this sermon, on Friday, I received a letter, an actual letter in the mail from somebody that I don't know. I've never heard of this person, never had any contact with this person, doesn't even live in town here, from out of town. They sent a letter. I think it was directed to pastors in general. But this person sent this letter letting us know that we're all living in the end times right now. Letting us know the ways in which churches and Christians are all failing and not ready for the coming persecution that we're all going to endure. And believe it or not, this person had the answers. They'd figured it out. So they had guidance for us as to how to endure all of this. It's a pretty common idea, a pretty popular idea in today's world. By the way, I don't think that person was correct. I just want to make that clear. But when you go back and you look at church history, and you look from the beginning of the church to today, you'll realize something the more you look. It's a popular idea in every single generation. Every single generation of Christians has had people who believed that they were living in the end times. It has had people who believed that they were the ones who had cracked the code, that they had figured it out. But the thing is, Sometimes 
these communities and this belief, it leads to some pretty unhealthy things. There was a man named Melchior Hoffman in 1530. He sat down and he was reading the book of Revelation and he thought he figured it out. He believed that the millennial reign of Christ was imminent, that it was coming, that it was going to be there soon. So he gathered a following. He also cracked the code and figured out that the New Jerusalem, when the Bible talks about that, it was actually the town that he lived in, Strasbourg. It's remarkable how many times when these groups develop or these prophets develop, self-proclaimed prophets develop, that the New Jerusalem is the city that they live in. It's, what a coincidence. So he figured out it was Strasbourg. He gathered a following. But then after some odd behavior, he was thrown in jail. His followers realized maybe he wasn't entirely correct. So one of his followers, Jan Mathis, who was a baker, said, you know what? He was right and he was wrong. The end times are upon us. The millennial kingdom is coming, but the new Jerusalem isn't Strasbourg. It's Munster, a town down the road. So Jan Mathis declared himself the second Enoch, which is a mysterious figure in the Bible that was connected to a lot of prophetic literature. And he went with some followers and they took over Munster violently. They took this town over. They created a little theocracy there with some very unhealthy practices. And then outside authorities realized we can't let this stand. So an army besieged Munster and it ended tragically with people losing their lives. Mathis' life was taken also. There was a lot of abuse and unhealthy practices going on, all because two people sat down and believed that they had figured out Revelation, that they were the ones who had finally cracked the code. The thing is, too, with all of this, it's almost like this idea of believing you're the end times, it can, it can almost become addictive. And even with evidence that the person was wrong who made the prophecy, people will not let go of it. They will keep holding on to that idea that they're living in the end times. There was a prophetess, self-proclaimed prophetess in England named Joanna Southcutt. She lived from 1750 to 1814. And she prophesied that she was going to birth a child who would rule the world and initiate the end times. The problem was that she was a virgin who was well past the age of bearing children. But she became so enamored with this idea that she developed a condition called pseudosiasis, which is where the body tricks itself into thinking it's pregnant when there is no child developing. She ended up passing away tragically in the midst of that. But her followers refused to simply admit that she was wrong. And instead, they sat down with the book of Revelation and they figured out a different character that she could connect to. And they kept up with her prophecies that she'd made. Every single one of them turned out to be incorrect. But even in the face of evidence, people have a tough time letting go of this. There was a man named William Miller who predicted that Jesus would return on October 2nd, 1844. He was specific. It was going to be that day. Even though Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. He said, October 2nd, 1844. When October 2nd, 1844 came and went, he and his followers didn't back down. They didn't admit that they were wrong. Instead, they said, no, the second coming had happened. It was just not a physical second coming on earth, but a spiritual second coming in heaven. I don't know how they reconciled the fact that the gospels tell us Jesus is already in heaven. So I don't know how you have a second coming to a place that you already are. I didn't research it enough to see how they figured that out. 
but they wouldn't let go of the fact that they were just simply wrong, and that his, false, his prophecy was false. In, eight, in the 1800s, Jehovah's Witnesses forecast that Christ would come in 1874. When he didn't, they then said, no, he actually did come. It was just an invisible second coming. They've actually reconciled a few false predictions by saying it was an invisible second coming over and over again. If there's no evidence of somebody's arrival, is that actually an arrival? Is a question that I don't know if they've ever answered. I'm sure many of us, to be clear, not me, were alive in the 1970s. I've turned 40. I just have to remind you all. I wasn't alive in the 70s yet. For Hal Lindsey and his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, it's one of the most popular books in the 1970s, one of the most best-selling books in the 1970s. And Hal Lindsey said that he sat down, he looked at the book of Revelation, and he figured out that Jesus would come after one generation of the founding of the nation of Israel. He equated the ancient people of Israel, the covenant people with God, to the nation state of Israel today. And he said that within one generation, Jesus was going to return. And that the Bible usually said one generation was 40 years. So 1988, he said. He said the 1980s would likely be the last decade of earth. Obviously, 1988 came and went. Here we are 35 years later. And he was wrong. He was inaccurate. He had not cracked the code. He actually made a couple other predictions later on that also turned out to be odd. Or, sorry, wrong. And then for myself, my own generation, when I was in high school, there was a series of books called the Left Behind series that tried to take some biblical ideas and apply it to the world in the 90s. If you go back and you read those books, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't line up. Technology is different. The way they thought things would play out, it just wouldn't work that way anymore. Communications technologies are all different. So here's the thing. In every single generation of the church, there have been people who thought that they were living in the end times. There's been people who thought they cracked the code. I just put a few examples together and it did not take me long to find those examples at all. Every single generation has had people who thought they were living in the end times. And so far, the success rate on this project is 0%. Everyone has been wrong to this point because we are still standing here. Zero percent. And yet, somehow, this still seems to be, uh, there still seems to be an, an allure to this idea. People still want to try to crack the code, even though Jesus himself says, no one knows the day or the hour. There are some things that we aren't supposed to know. And when the world is going to end, the exact day and time of when it's going to end, we're not supposed to know that. Jesus was clear about that. But for some reason, the church and Christians, there's always people who want to follow that path, who want to go down that road. And sometimes the church can start to look like the person who tragically has a gambling addiction who has lost their house, lost their family, lost their job, who has no income, but still keeps saying, I'm going to get it right this time. This bet is going to be the one. Now, the church doesn't lose its house and its family or any of those things, but what the church does lose 
is its sense of purpose. It forsakes the calling that God has given it. We're not here to crack the code on when Jesus is going to return. We're here to proclaim the fact that Jesus will return. That it will happen someday. We don't know when. So I want to say this. If you're somebody that this is you, and you find yourself trying to figure out when Jesus is going to return, or believing that you live in the end times, I'm going to ask you to question that a little bit. And maybe set it aside for a little bit, and look at Peter's advice here in this letter. Because Peter actually gives advice for how the Christians in his day can respond when they believe that the end of all things is near. Peter gives them some pretty practical suggestions for what they can do with the truth. And they believe that the end of all things is near. He says the end of all things is near. Therefore, and he lays out for them what they should do. So if you want to believe the world is ending, well, here's what you should do. First off, Peter says, discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Prayer is what Peter pushes them towards. If you think the world is ending, pray to God. Bring your concerns to God. Let God know what this world needs. If you're feeling anxiety about that, bring that anxiety to God. But prayer, it's critical. If you really believe things are all ending, go to God in prayer. It's natural. It makes sense. Peter also says, though, discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. And this is where a lot of the times when people start believing they're in the end times, they lose a lot of discipline. They become very undisciplined. They become a little chaotic. I mean, when I describe that scene in Munster there where they're taking over a city, that is not discipline. That is complete chaos. And the city was thrown into chaos. So discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayer. That's his first advice. Go to God in prayer. The second thing he says, above all else, maintain a constant love for one another. You believe everything is going to end, well, respond by loving one another. Loving those in the church. He's talking specifically about people in the church there. Love one another. What's kind of sad about this is a lot of the times when people believe they're in the end times, they end up isolating themselves and separating themselves from Christians who don't believe they're in the end times. For somebody who disagrees about reading Revelation, they end up separating. You get all these arguments pre-trib, post-trib, a-millennial, post-millennial, all this division over this. When in reality, Peter's advice is love one another. Look, everybody has been wrong to this point about revelation and when things are going to happen. Maybe you're also wrong in that. And maybe loving somebody who disagrees with you it's more simple and more in line with the gospel. He has that line in there. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's a pretty famous line. And I think it hammers home the point. We cannot ever overestimate the importance of love in following Jesus. The love that the Bible talks about that we're supposed to have. It's a very reflection of the love that God has. First John says explicitly, God is love. Love is equated to God. They are the same thing. The love that we have with one another, the love that we have as a community that we share, the love in your family, if it is good and it is pure, it is of God. 
And it's meant to be an example to the world of what this world is supposed to look like. So if the world is ending, love one another. Let the people who are outside of the church community understand what that love looks like, that they might also have hope. That they might also know who God is in the midst of that. So that's Peter's second advice. Love one another. And then he says, flowing out of that love, use your gifts to serve one another. If you're a Christian, if Jesus is Lord, if you're just a basic human being, you are made in the image of God, which means there's a reflection of God in you. You have gifts that this world needs. You have gifts that the church needs. You have something that you can offer. Use those gifts so that the church can continue to spread its message of hope. If you believe the world is ending, dive deeper into a church community that this hope can spread. Use your gifts. It's funny. You look at this advice that Peter gives. Discipline yourselves in prayer. Maintain a constant love for one another. Use your gifts to serve one another. This is his advice in the face of the end of all things being near. It doesn't look any different than just following Jesus in normal times. It's the same stuff. Because here's the basic truth of it all. Sometimes people will talk about the second coming. There's a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann, though, who has, I think, correctly pointed out the idea of the second coming isn't actually entirely accurate. It's more like this is a revealing. Because in many ways, Jesus never left. The Holy Spirit is here with us. The Holy Spirit is carrying us. When we come to the communion table, Jesus' presence is here in a unique and real way. When Christ returns, it's more like a revealing where we see him in his fullness. But he's here with us now. So if you believe that Jesus is present with us now and you believe that there will be a revealing where he's more fully revealed, well, he's always been with us. So your behavior shouldn't change all that much. Go to God in prayer. Love one another. I would even add, love your enemies so that they can understand who God is. And use your gifts for the sake of the church that this hope can spread. It doesn't change. Now, I'm not going to be naive enough to think that all of a sudden Christians are going to stop being tempted by the allure of trying to figure out when the world is going to end. Like I said, there can be something almost addictive about this. And how does this develop? How do people get so caught up in thinking that they or somebody they're reading or following has figured it all out? I, I don't know entirely. I have some guesses. Part of me thinks some of it comes from a general anxiety we all feel. You look around at the world. You see how broken it is. You see how things are falling apart. And feeling like you know when it's all going to end and be made right, that can be comforting. It can give you a sense of control. I think that's why every generation, at least part of the reason why every generation has had a group that thought the world was going to end. Because if you look long enough, you're going to find evidence that it looks like the world is going to end. Those signs are always there in a broken world. So I do think that that's part of it. I also think, though, that just basic boredom is a part of it. People get bored with their lives. And believing that you're part of some cosmic battle is a lot more interesting than just going to work and being faithful day to day and loving your neighbor and loving your enemies. So it's easy to get caught up in that. I mean, 
How many great sci-fi and fantasy shows are focused on a great cosmic battle? There's something that is exciting about that. So I think that's part of it too. I also think we have to just acknowledge there's a level of grift going on here. People make money off of this stuff. In today's world, YouTube content creators are making money every time somebody watches one of their videos. People are selling books. People are making money off of the church, enriching themselves because of this. I think that's part of it too, and that's why it keeps getting fed. And then also, I think at the end of the day, we all want to know that Jesus is going to return. And deep down, we all want that to happen. So you want to have it happen as soon as possible and believing it's going to happen in our lifetime. Well, maybe also you don't have to experience death. And maybe there's a little bit of fear of death going on there as well. I don't know what the reason is. I just know it's likely going to continue. But please, in those moments where that might be tempting for you, remember Peter's advice. Remember when he says the end of all things is near. He encourages you to pray, to love one another, to serve one another with your gifts. Do that. Follow that advice. Like I said, every single generation has had a group who thought they were living in the end times. And the success rate is 0%. But I have to say, at some point, one of them is going to get it right. At some point, one generation is going to be correct. They're going to be lucky. But when that day happens, when Jesus does return, it's not something to be anxious of or feel for, fearful of. It's not something to worry about. It's a day of deep hope. It's a day that we long for. It's a day when this world will be made right, when sickness will become a distant memory, when death and illness become distant memories, where tears are shed no more and grief no longer exists. It is a day for us to long for and to hope for and to proclaim that it will happen. We don't know when, but Jesus will be faithful and he'll be revealed in his fullness and this world will look how God intended. So if the idea of the world ending starts to give you anxiety, remember Peter's advice. Remember the end of the book of Revelation when God lives amongst humanity and take comfort in that. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you love this world. And we thank you that you sent your son because of your love for this world to save this world, not to condemn this world. And we thank you that one day you will be revealed in your fullness. We will see you seated upon the throne. And then that day is a day of rejoicing. It's a hopeful day, a day that we long for. So Lord, in those moments where we start to find ourselves getting too caught up and when you're going to return, and when this is all going to happen, Lord. Help us to remember that you told us that it's not ours to know. Help us to remember to stay faithful to the calling you've given, you've given us. And help us to continue to spread the hope that we have, the hope that you will return, and the hope that you will restore this world. And Lord, as we take our offering now, bless this offering and use it so that people would understand that hope. Use it so that we would be a community that loves one another, that uses our gifts to serve one another, and not just serving one another, but serving our community. Use these gifts so that through our church here, 
People will know who you are, will trust that you will restore this world and make it right. And Lord, use these gifts so that their faith will be placed in you. We thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.
spoke a word you were singing over me have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so good to me. Wow. 